Oh yes, hello humans, welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today is Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He is a former data scientist at Google, now turned author and writer. Um, We're talking about big data today. Previously, we touched on something similar, actually. If you listen to the episode I did with Professor David Carroll, one of the main guys in Netflix's The Great Hack documentary. But rather than working out the ethical concerns of whether or not we should be concerned about people capturing our data... We're actually going into the data itself anonymously. You see, the fact of the matter is that Google knows things about you that even your closest friends don't, because the things that you type into a search engine in the privacy of your own web browsing are often things that you've never told anybody else. So in short, Seth has a window into your soul that maybe you didn't even know was there, and we're going to look at it today, so... Get ready for this one. Oh yeah, also, if you are new here or if you haven't hit the subscribe button yet, please do so. It would make me very happy indeed. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. Now please welcome the wise and wonderful Seth Stephen Davidowitz. So first things first, how do you describe what you do for work or on a day-to-day basis? Uh, well, so I guess I'm I guess I'm a data scientist and, a, and an author, a writer. So, uh, you know, I've spent most of my time on books. I wrote Everybody Lies. I'm trying to write, I'm in the process of writing another book. And uh, other than that, I don't know, a lot of random projects. I do random consulting for companies and... Uh, there's not necessarily a standard day, but I got uh, you. Is it a lot of time on spreadsheets or similar sort of applications? Yeah, R, the coding language. There's a lot of time on that. Kind of moving back and forth between R and uh, Google Docs, because uh, I guess the combination of data science, which is R, and writing, which is Google Docs. Got you. Uh, and then sometimes just researching a lot of like reading. So a lot of reading other people's studies, kind of reading what uh, other people are talking about. Since I can't just uh, write about my own studies. Which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah, it would be lovely. Um, so you wrote a book called Everybody Lies, New York Times bestseller, but I heard that you wanted to call it How Big Is My Penis? Is that right? <laughs> that, 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 is, that is correct, yeah. You I, wanted I, to call your book How Big Is Your Penis? No, How Big Is My Penis? How Big Is uh, My Penis? Yes. Well, no, basically the reason for it is that that's one of the top – well, I, I talk about how men ask more – 
Google more questions about their penis than any other body part. And that one of the top questions they ask Google about their penis is how big is my penis, which is just like an absurd question to ask Google. Right? They're not going to be able to answer that. So I, I kind of thought that that title would kind of get the flavor of what some of the, some of the things I was talking about. Uh, that kind of, but I think one of the things that my research has shown is the absurdity of the human condition, the absurdity of people. We kind of people kind of put on a very presentable front. But in the privacy of their own home, on their Google search engine or the websites they visit, and they go to Pornhub, they kind of just show uh, a different side of themselves, which is a little bit stupider, a little bit less polished, a little bit weirder, a little bit sometimes nastier. Uh, but I think uh, it's kind of, it's kind of um, an interesting view of people that we haven't really previously had. Mm, yeah, that totally unfettered view where you, you don't think that anyone else is watching, but the data analysts are watching. You are. Well, the, the data I analyze is all anonymous and aggregate, so I don't know that any particular man searched how big is my penis. I just know that lots of men apparently. Uh. <laughs> you know what I think? I think there is an opening in the market for an app which can use AR, like augmented reality. You hold it up to your face, you angle the penis, and then it it works out how big it is. Well, how would you, you'd have to know how big the face is. Right, you need like something behind. You need to be like standing in front of the Eiffel Tower or something. Uh-huh. something but then you need to know the distance, and they know the distance. Then yeah, but I don't think just compa- yeah, I don't know. Yeah, rule is easier, isn't it? Anyway, anyway, we're getting off. We're getting off track. Um, <laughs> uh, so you have this I think unique. A lot of men like when they, they, the question is so important to them that I think one of the reasons they ask that is like, there's almost like men don't want to face the moment of truth like it would be easy to just measure but they're like is there another way to find the answer because there's so much insecurity i guess and uh fear and anxiety around the process have you seen Uh, the south park episodes where they do that where they do what they measure their penis have you seen this i haven't seen it anyone who's listening if you get the opportunity to go back and watch the south park episode where they all measure each other's penises it's unbelievable because they there's some people who have really small measurements and they all get really really angry so then they create this new formula where they adjust for the yaw, like the height of the penis, and then they divide it and they create this ratio, and it actually makes it like several feet long. And then every all of the problems that everybody had has been completely accounted for. That used to happen in sports. I remember like uh, my friends and I we were nerdy, but we were, we were like we were nerdy and very very competitive. So like we'd get out the stats at the end of the year. I played baseball, and then like we'd all like create the you know you'd have like the basic stats like your batting average your home runs your rbis your runs whatever and then we'd all create metrics like how we should we should weight the different categories mm-hmm. uh to kind of come up with overall offense the kind of overall production and we all came up with some metric where we were ranked number one <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, yeah. so. that's the that's the adjusted penis size so yeah. um why why call it everybody lies then why why was the book everybody well lies? that all- yeah, first of all, my publisher chose that title, but I, I, I think it's a good title. It kind of gets the point. Some of my research, which is that people in their day-to-day life uh, lie a lot. So we lie face-to-face. We also lie, surprisingly, somewhat to anonymous surveys. That's a traditional way we tried to understand human beings historically, uh, what they're thinking, what they're going to do, what they have done, why they do the things they do is surveys so gallup or pew or quinnipiac or another organization will ask people questions and even with this methodology even though it's anonymous uh people do 
shade their answers to try to sound good. Maybe they're lying to themselves. Uh, maybe they're just in the habit of lying. They don't have an incentive to tell the truth, so they are more likely to say they voted in the previous election than they did. They, did. they exaggerate how frequently they have sex. If you ask them in surveys, you compare that to actual condom sales I, I show in the book, like it doesn't correspond at all. Uh, so, you know, how what uh, what media they consume, how frequently they're uh, watching kind of highbrow stuff versus lowbrow stuff, they'll all lie in these surveys. But now, thanks to the internet and largely Google, but other websites as well, we have kind of a new window into people that I think gets cut through the lies a lot. So Google, for example, you see people uh, searching how to vote, where to vote, that's really predictive whether they're actually gonna vote. You talk, see them searching about sexless marriage or sexless relationship, or my boyfriend doesn't wanna have sex with me. Uh, and then you get a kind of a more realistic picture of how, what happens in, in many relationships. And uh, you see people searching for their sexual insecurity or you see people, uh, what, what they actually wanna read, the media they actually wanna consume, I think it's really much more accurate. Uh, you know, And then there's a whole section on pornography. I mean, talk about an area where there's been uh, a huge amount of deception because it's kind of, there are so many taboos in that area. I think we really do have unprecedented window into people's kind of sexual sexuality mm. uh, that we've never had before thanks to pornography. And I analyze in, in Everybody Lies, uh, kind of have a whole section where I analyze just Pornhub, what people actually watch on Pornhub, uh, which yeah, makes people giggle, but it's also, I think, pretty fascinating and, re and kind of revolutionary, kind of this window into uh, people's minds that we didn't have, I mean, you know, you all of human history up until five years ago, we didn't know that. We didn't know what people fantasized about sexually. We might have had some clues by, uh, you know, novels people wrote or some theories that some, uh, you know, people like Freud came up with or, you know, there's some surveys, the Kinsey study, but it's kind of a little bit, you know, there's questions about how accurate that was, uh, kind of a, a biased sample. But I think now we kind of have really uh, much better clues in that arena. So uh, kind of over and over again, I think. Uh, so, so there are just so many areas where I think we're, we do have unprecedented uh, insights into people. Yeah, and then it's your job to sift through this aggregated anonymous data and try and analyze or come up with some correlations between things and some interesting insights. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, I think uh, that's kind of the talent. There's kind of an art to data science. I think data science people kind of don't usually associate with creativity. Uh, we usually think of art. You know, a painter is creative, a musician is creative, a data scientist we think is kind of this nerdy, uh, just kind of sit by a computer, plugs the numbers in. And uh, I think creativity is a huge part of data science. Otherwise, you kind of just drown in the data and you don't really know what's interesting. So kind of uh, the creativity is kind of looking through all that and finding those nuggets of wisdom. You know, the how big is my penis search or the, <laughs> the, the my other favorite is Indian uh, men. The top Google search my husband wants in India is my husband wants me to breastfeed him. And that's like India. Yeah, no, I'm not joking. That's like India and nowhere else. And also breastfeeding porn is uh, reasonably popular in India and nowhere else. Uh, <laughs> porn. And that's kind of the types of things that, I mean, that's kind of like, that's kind of, that kind of, that's kind of shocking in many ways because it's, it's not talked about. It wasn't really acknowledged without this data. And it kind of shows that some sort of uh, fetish can develop in one part of the world and nowhere else. Uh, and become kind of somewhat widespread. I don't think it's you know the majority of Indian men, but it's a, certainly a large number. A significant minority, yeah. Significant minority without being talked about at all. Uh, and like how else, how else would you find about that, right? How else would you know? Yeah, yeah and you wouldn't find out about it without uh, without this type of data. So that yeah, so things like that. I mean, you know, kind of 
finding those insights amidst you know just kind of rows and rows of data uh, is kind of a, an art and something that you get better at uh, with practice and takes a lot of creativity. Uh, but yeah. one one of the things that I absolutely love Pornhub issue a bunch of stats at the end of each year nothing yeah. it, they don't delve into it like you do but it's like amount of playtime uh the top searches by area and and stuff like that and even that even the things that yeah. they do in-house is pretty pretty powerful oh yeah and i know some of the data scientists there and they're they're really good and they're and you know and it is just it's kind of i kind of you know i think people don't take it almost seriously enough you know in academia or sociologists i, I kind of reached out to pornhub when i was writing my book and i'm like uh, can I, I really want to look at your data. I'm a, I explained I'm a data scientist. I showed them some of the work I had done writing columns for the New York Times, and uh, they, they agreed to give me the data. But I, I would have thought that, I'm like, do you get 10 emails a day from like sex researchers or sociologists? And, and they're like, kind of like, no, you know, you know, they're kind of comfortable with the methodologies they've been using uh, for 50, 60 years. And, uh, you know, the, it, academia kind of moves slowly and doesn't change uh, that, that quickly. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of. I think I think your instinct and my instinct is all that is like, wow, that's fascinating. Like you know, and and uh, you know, relative to kind of just another survey about human beings and what they're doing, what they're interested in sexually, actually seeing uh, kind of you know this data from uh, this enormous site of of you know sexual fantasy or sexual desire is pretty pretty wild. And, what, know, pretty, ha- what happens when you receive? the Pornhub stats in your Dropbox or like over WeTransfer or whatever it is? Is it just like this gargantuan kind of sticky, like disgusting sort of bit of stats uh, I, or whatever? Did I it feel know. icky opening that file versus opening another one? I'm a little bit like uh, socially oblivious. So like for me, it's just like, I might as well have just been getting a data set of like interest rates historically, uh, you know, and inflation historically and running the numbers on that. To me, I'm just, except this one was more interesting to me, but I'm not like, Oh, this is a weird use of my time, or like a lot of people would be kind of queasy looking at this, or embarrassing, embarrassed looking at this. I don't really, whatever part of the brain normal people have uh, that kind of shies away from that type of research or that type of activity, I definitely You've, uh, don't. So you I, found, I wasn't at all found the right industry to be in then. Yeah, well, I kind of just invented this industry, I think. But yeah, it does fit my personality. Uh, if you have like. Uh, you're kind of a little bit, I guess, shameless and uh, not queasy. And I think uh, there's kind of a good combination, which is that I built up, before I wrote my book, I built up all these credentials. I did a PhD in economics at Harvard, and I went to Stanford and studied philosophy. I was a writer from the New York Times. I worked at Google. So I think when I do this, people aren't like, people are like, give me like a lot of leeway. Like if I was like some 20-year-old in my bait, like 20-year-old, like with no no qualification, I'm just like, Hey, you know, I'm analyzing porn. Everyone would be like, you know, that pervert. Like, what, <laughs> what's that guy doing? But like, for, with me, it's like, oh, you know, this is science. Like, I, I think that, that people assume a certain respectability with me just based on the credentials that I kind of get away uh, with, uh, you know, more than I than I otherwise would. I think, you know, if, if if I didn't have the credentials and I came out with the research I did, I think a lot of people would be like, wait, that guy just locked himself in his apartment and watched porn for two years. <laughs> yeah, this is just him. This is him and his breastfeeding, his yeah, breastfeeding but, uh, stuff. Yeah, but you know, with, with, with the credentials, it's kind of like, oh, that guy is, you know, exploring the deepest uh, recesses of the human psyche. Mm. He's got this veneer of, like, respectability yeah. and academic kind of justification, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I get invited to like all these talks and like prestigious places and it's never like, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, and I, 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 you know, which I, I'm kind of like, did you, did you read like my, my book or like how, how filthy it is and how inappropriate it is at times? But uh, I, I, for some reason, I just keep on getting away with it. Prim and proper academics everywhere, and there's you just swimming in Pornhub statistics towards the stage to like, yeah. say hello to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah. And I talk. I usually, you know, bring up some of the porn data but i try to i try again i try to use the that once the introduction comes and there's so much respectability that it's kind of like people kind of go go you know i, I can kind of take them along on my uh, ride so got you so what else what else have we learned from porn let's stay with porn for a second before we get away from porn were there any other sort of surprising things that came up other than the, some, uh, of them, some of them i think when i came when the book came out people said they were really shocking to me i didn't find this shocking so for example the popularity of rape porn among women is very, very striking in data. Uh, a huge percent of heterosexual porn searches or video, videos watched by women are for kind of violent humiliation uh, against the woman mm. and much more popular among women than men, about twice as popular among women than men. Uh, that, that didn't shock me. There have been surveys that kind of have talked about that a lot of women have these types of fantasies and kind of just in my conversations with friends, I have very honest friends. This is kind of, you know, this kind of come up in my life that mm. that it, that it didn't. When I when I saw the data, I'm not like, oh my god, that mm. shocked. Well, I kind of wrote it. I mean, and, look at look at the most popular book of the last yeah, decade. 50, right? Yeah, yeah. So Fifty Shades so, of Grey. But you know, it still is. It still did have. I think what was more interesting is you actually can compare the percentages around the world, and it's not correlated at all with how women are treated. That's kind of interesting. That's not, it's how, not like, oh, how so? What do you mean? In other words, so you have like some areas like Berkeley, California, or like parts of, you know, or parts of, uh, you know, or you have Sweden or Finland or Netherlands, which Finland now is a female prime, prime minister, and like there were, there was really much progressive attitudes towards women. Then you have areas like, you know, Saudi Arabia or Iran where women are really held back. And it's not like, so you could really rank kind of, you know, how, how women are treated are they are they treated like second class citizens? how egalitarian it is yeah and you, you might you, you could imagine that that could affect how women think about themselves and kind of you know affect their fantasies but it doesn't seem to you know it's, it's kind of a it's pretty universal state. universal yeah, desire to watch some it, like hardcore it, porn even if even if women are growing up telling you know saying they could be everything they're they're equal to men they're you know there still is uh, that fantasy seems to exist in about the same number as the places where women are saying like men should dominate you men are the you know the the should be the leaders of society so that was pretty interesting that is that is really really fascinating do you ever ask the why question do you ever bother to delve into that or do you just sort of stick to the to the data so like, i'm trying to in the next in the next level you know i think there are uh you know it's it's i think the initial thing initially i was kind of just presenting the facts and I have I haven't made much progress. I I thought other people would come up with theories. So I thought when I wrote the breastfeeding one, people are gonna like maybe there's some explanation that's very obvious that, you know, I didn't know that, but nothing's come up, uh, you know, to kind of explain this. So I I don't know. It's it, it's tough. Uh, I think, you know, I think there are definitely some areas. So definitely, I think people are more attracted to people they grew up around, uh, or like people like them i think probably maybe more maybe because of their environment so there's kind of been this long idea that opposites attract uh and i think if you see in dating data it's not true at all so in dating data it's very very clear that people are drawn to people 
who are similar to themselves on just about any dimension you could measure. And pornography data, it also seems to be the case. So if you look at areas that have high African-American populations, uh, they tend to watch porn featuring African-American, so men in that area, those areas tend to uh, watch porn featuring African-American women in large numbers. Uh, so it's not like, you know, uh, yeah, I think you could imagine that it would go the opposite way and the, the fantasy of the black man would be, you know, the, the white cheerleader or something. I don't know that you could have met, uh, yeah. but it, it's definitely not the case. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that kind of, I think, also moves towards the Y direction that maybe sexual, I, I do think that one of the things you see is that uh, sexual fantasy seems to be related to childhood in various ways. Uh, so people uh, tend to have fantasies from their childhood. They fantasize about uh, babysitters or like teachers. Or I think there's kind of a there's kind of a, maybe kind of key moments in childhood where people kind of get imprinted sexually. That also uh, dovetails with some other research in, in fields of sexuality. Uh, that childhood imprinting is really important in developing uh, adult sexuality. Mm. So that would explain why if, if you know. Uh, a black man had grown up around a lot of black women, uh, he'd probably be more likely to be attracted to black women uh, than uh, than someone who hadn't been grown yeah, up. I get um, that. What about yeah. um, when we're talking about the split between heterosexual and homosexual? There must be some interesting insights there about how many men and women are being truthful about their sexuality. Yeah. So one of the things that, that's also striking today, which also didn't surprise me, just because it had come up in conversations I'd had with very honest friends, is the popularity of lesbian porn among women who otherwise consider themselves totally straight. And I think, you know, I like, uh, I don't think that they're necessarily in the closet. Uh, so like, I think about, I think it was, I, I don't remember the exact numbers. I think something like 20 to 25% of pornography uh, views from women are for lesbian, explicitly lesbian porn. And I think, you know, this has come up in surveys or focus groups. A lot of women, you know, they live in Berkeley or San Francisco or areas where it's totally, uh, you know, or, or where, where, you know, in this day and age, I think it's pretty okay uh, to be lesbian. I don't think there are many social pressures to be heterosexual. And they consider themselves straight. They only want to pursue relationships with men, but they're just like, you know, the female body's hotter. Like, it's just, they, they can, I think, disconnect kind of the real emotional Women are maybe sometimes, I don't want to overgeneralize, but women may be better at disconnecting uh, the kind of emotional, romantic connection to mm -hmm. just like, your, your physical uh, in, in interesting ways, possibly. I don't know. It's, that's, quite, it's, that's quite a unique insight because I doubt that the equivalent would be true for men with, yeah, gay, so what, with gay porn. Yeah, what you see with men is that gay porn is about 5%. Um, you know, depending on it depends on the site you look at. It seems like about five percent of male porn, maybe a little bit lower, is for gay porn. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you see is that it's a it's it seems pretty clear. You know, it's almost as high in areas where it's hard to be gay, where a lot fewer men say they're gay. So places like Mississippi or Alabama or Tennessee, if you ask men, "Are you gay?" Only about one to two percent of men will say they're gay. Whereas in New York and California, about four percent of men will say they're gay. But the gay porn searches are almost the same everywhere, which I think says that that a lot of the men in Mississippi are, are in the are in the closet. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I do think you also see with the searches. So the number one search, uh, neck like one of the top searches, right in, a, in the same session where someone searches gay porn is gay test, 
which is also kind of ridiculous search. It's kind of like the how big is my penis search. They ask you these ridiculous questions to try to figure out, like, are you gay? But I think, uh, and these searches are much more common in, in the place where it's hard to be gay, mm. uh, the gay test searches. And I think when you see these these kind of the search strings, uh, you kind of see a tortured man or a man who's really uncomfortable with his sexuality and, and, and is trying to is like trying to find some way to prove that he's not gay. Uh, you know, but almost I to himself. He's not proving it to anybody yeah, almost, else, right? Yeah, to some some stupid internet test. So I think you do see kind of the torture that uh, you know it, that some gay, gay men feel in places uh, where it is hard to be gay, and which is you know it's changing. Thankfully, uh, fewer and fewer parts of the world now uh, you know, have anti-gay attitudes, but there mm-hmm. still are a lot of places. Yeah, it's interesting now where you're talking about these strings of search terms where you can weave together a narrative of what's going on were there any other strings of search terms that you thought were particularly interesting or anything you've come across recently yeah so one of them i've been i'm working on an article on this now but i've been looking at you know a dark topic but suicide uh, i think it's an important topic because you could imagine if you had a search string if you had a string of searches and someone searches how to commit suicide mm-hmm. you could imagine looking at the searches earlier and kind of getting a view of what's causing them to have that thought I think that's an, another area where we don't have right now uh, a great idea of why everybody, you know, why people think of suicide because there's so much stigma around that whole area. And what, like one of the things I found, which is really surprising, was a, 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 com, a somewhat common cause of suicidal thought among young people is herpes, getting diagnosed with herpes, the STD, uh, which kind of sounds a little ridiculous. Uh, it's not a, a it's a disease that's actually pretty common uh, and it's it's not one with you know it's not life-threatening the physical symptoms are to the best of my knowledge uh, fairly limited uh, but I think the stigma is immense and you can imagine a, a young person who's just gotten diagnosed with herpes when, when people are 18 19 years old I mean I, if I go back to my own uh, experience in that age group you don't know what's going on you don't know how the world works it's such an a time of extreme paranoia uh, that there's something fundamentally wrong with you. I mean, it's kind of like the kids in Mississippi who are searching gay porn and gay tests. There's, it's so easy to get paranoid uh, that you are kind of, you know, uh, lacking in some fu- fundamental way, or you know, you, you, that uh, that, that you, not, you don't know what's common, what isn't common. I've, you know, I've heard stories of you know women that freak, little girls who freak out when they first grow breasts that they have breast cancer or something like you know it's like when you're a kid and when you're I think the possibility for uh, kind of extreme paranoia is very high and it can as the data says it can lead you to be in so much pain and so much anxiety that you actually uh, think of committing suicide uh, so I think that's really. Uh, a promising area of research to kind of get in the mindset of the suicidal, particularly young people mm. feeling suicidal and maybe starting to fight these attitudes. The, another thing I found is the number one search when in the search string when people search herpes and how to commit suicide is celebrities with herpes, which is they're basically looking for role models. It's actually, that's actually a common search for just about any illness. So people who have depression search celebrities with depression. People who have back pain search celebrities with back pain. People are looking for role models for heroes of theirs who share their condition to, so that they feel less stigmatized. And I looked on Google what kind of happens when you search celebrities with herpes. And if you search celebrities with just about any illness, celebrities with depression, huge number of celebrities openly discuss their depression in part to fight the stigma. Celebrities with 
with back pain celebrities with and, and just about any illness you can think of a long list of celebrities uh, saying they're uh, uh, kind of uh, coming out of that, that closet uh, mm-hmm. to, to help I think uh, to their credit to help uh, their fans uh, who might also be struggling with this problem but celebrities with herpes you see basically what the top sites at least last time I checked was just celebrities denying they had this uh, you know <laughs> it's the opposite yeah and then you can imagine alright like put all this data together you have young people they, they were diagnosed with herpes they're thinking of committing suicide they're looking for celebrities with herpes and instead of greet, you know, getting greeted with a list of celebrities videos saying you know this is nothing to be ashamed of it's not a big deal I live with this you know it's uh, you have celebrities saying, I would never have, uh, you know, Neil. It's, uh, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like, it kind of, every time I tell this, it does make people giggle. And, you know, I admit I've giggled sometimes myself, but I think it actually is like kind of profound and, and serious and shows Very the power so. of this kind of this unvarnished window into the human mind uh, and how powerful that could be. And, uh, you know, that a lot of people, a lot of people are suffering in ways that are, that's, are, it makes us giggle because they're so silly. But to that person, it's not silly. It's mm-hmm. like they might as well be in Auschwitz. <laughs> like they, they might like the pain that someone, a suicidal person, is feeling, no matter what the cause of it, uh, is extreme. So uh, you know, like so, I think getting a sense of getting a getting a sense of, of, of a better sense of uh, the the, the uh, people's kind of darker thoughts uh, can be. Uh, really helpful and can, can you know that, that kind of we kind of have a that kind of suggests kind of an obvious way to change it get more celebrities to say to you know say they have herpes i'm and, not and sure i'm not quite sure how you mandate for that but yeah you're right the social i don't know you'd say the social policy implications the welfare implications the um advertising role model the um everything there's the downstream from this you know third order fourth order fifth order effect yeah. of us realizing this uh super super profound i hope you know we're only halfway through this but one of the things that's certainly coming to mind at the moment for me is that you're right what you've done so far um with your first book is kind of just laid out the facts right this is this this is what it is that's the surface level of the permafrost right but the roots underneath that's the job of of a lot of people several orders of yeah. magnitude more people than a guy with with a R code and a Google Doc, like yeah, yeah, uh, to, and there are to... there are there are lots of people in this area, and you know, data science is just exploding in all kinds of ways. And I think a lot of people are, you know, I think uh, definitely millennials or people younger than millennials are also looking. You know, it seems like the values are shifting a little bit, where it's less about just making money. So I think initially everyone's kind of like. Oh, data science, that's a lucrative field. I can get a job at, you know, getting more people to click on ads or uh, work, get a job in finance, which, which is totally, are totally fine jobs. Uh, and, Lo and you know, behold, and, they're swimming through Pornhub data five years after they finished their yeah, degree. But, but I think, you know, I, a lot of people are reaching out to me that they're, you know, that they're kind of bored of studying. You know, they, they, they like data science, but they're kind of bored of, of getting people to click on ads and they're, you know, they, they feel kind of unfulfilled and lacking purpose. And I think there are ways to use this data. Uh, towards social good as well. Uh, Got you. But, what, yeah. What's your so we're we're in 2020. You've just crossed the threshold into the year of the presidential election in America. I mean this 
this must be like you staring down the barrel of the Super Bowl for your your industry, or is it you're just going to have inundated with loads of different types of statistics, and then you can measure them before and look at what happens afterwards? Have you got some plans for this? Yeah, with that? I, I, I'll play around. I play I play around every election. There are definitely insights in the internet. You know, I, I think Nate Silver of Five Thirty Eight does a really good job of making predictions based on kind of uh, all the data. So it can be hard to be you know, tough to, to beat his predictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he put he put so much thought and care into Didn't he, uh, building. Did, did you retweet something of his about, was it the Democratic nominees? Was that like this oh, week? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but I, did, I did. Well, he kind of, he just built a model of the Democratic nominee, and I just thought that this wasn't based on data. This is actually just based on my intuition that he's maybe underestimating Michael Bloomberg's chances just because, uh, you know, he's, his whole kind of in the past models, the past elections where he's building uh, the models from, there's never been a candidate who's willing to just spend billions of dollars to try to get elected. So I think we don't really know how that's going to play out. And that mm. kind of you know makes me say you shouldn't, you know, I think in his model, Bloomberg's at 1% or, or something like that. Uh, and I, I kind of think, you know, maybe 5 to 10% just because uh, the amount of resources he's going to throw at this problem. Got you. Uh, what's the? So have you looked at much data? I don't know whether you can predict this far out, um, but have you looked at much data for moving forward into twenty twenty? I think it's. Ta- I think this time out, this this part, this time out, it, this far out, it's tough. Uh, you need you need to look closer. Uh, you know, I think so many people just aren't really thinking about their election, or you know, a lot of it. A lot of the general election will come down to who's going to actually turn out to vote, mm-hmm. and that I think we're going to need to wait. You know, a few weeks before the election, where we'll really get clues uh, on who's actually going to turn out to vote. You hear the the story that um, people decide as they cross the threshold into the voting booth, right? Like it's like the decision that they actually feel like they make is that. But it must be so interesting to to compare because you have exit polls that don't. You know, in the last election that you guys had, the exit polls didn't marry up tremendously well with what actually happened. But were you? Did you have better, more of an insight about what was going to go on, or retrospectively, would you? Well, have I, had... I, I said Trump, I said Trump was going to win, but I don't know if that's because I'm a genius or a pessimist. Because I'm just right, always. Let's, predict- uh, let's go with genius. Let's okay, with, yeah, I'm always genius. predicting horrible things are going to happen. But mm-hmm. uh, there, there are some clues. So one of the interesting things that correlates with voting outcome is the order you put candidates in searches. So a lot of people they search. Trump Clinton polls or Clinton Trump polls or Trump Clinton Trump election. And you can see if you actually look historically, the order, if people put Trump Clinton first, they're much more likely to go Trump. If they put Clinton Trump for Clinton Trump Clinton first, they're more likely to go Clinton. And that's kind of interesting because it might almost be subconscious. And you could imagine someone like they've been searching Trump Clinton election, Trump Clinton polls, Trump Clinton debate. And then they say, if you ask them, they're undecided and they go to the, they go to the, a polling place and they think they're undecided and then a few seconds before they cast their vote as you said they say okay you know I'm feeling Trump well maybe they weren't undecided all along and if you like looked at the data mm-hmm. they were giving away subconsciously uh, which way they were going to go have you, uh, from, um, have you have you looked at much of Sam Harris's work on free will uh, I, I do know I do know I do know some of that work yeah yeah there's some interesting stuff on that about when they say um raise your left or right hand or like pick a random city or whatever it might be and if they put people into uh, is it fmris where they can kind of do brain scans and stuff like that and they're able to tell when someone made the decision to do the thing they're going to do 
before right. they do it and also before they think that they realised when they were going to decide to do it um, and that's kind of this is like a more drawn out version of that yeah. right definitely I'm sure it happens uh, yeah I'm sure it's a pretty widespread phenomenon mm, yeah so there's I'm looking at some of the things that I pulled out of the book can we can we talk about um, what what should you say on a first date if you want a second oh yeah well that's not my study that's uh study researchers they actually had people tape they were in speed they people going through speed dates and they had people tape their dates uh like tape record everything that was said mm. and then after the date it was heterosexual dates the man and the woman said basically whether they wanted to go on a second date uh so they could actually correlate the words said on the date with the probability that both you like the other person and that the other person likes you mm. so some of the things weren't that surprising so for example uh if a woman laughs at a man's jokes, she's more likely to, to like him, to want to go on a second date. It's pretty well known. Uh, men, to get a woman to like them, are they're supposed to use words that show kind of support and care. So you have to say things like, that must have been tough, or uh, that, that, that must have been tough, or you know that sounds hard. Uh, that kind of increases the probability that a woman uh, likes you. And then sometimes people like give away again subconsciously how they feel or maybe not so subconsciously but mm -hmm. if a woman uses what are called hedge words so she says things like maybe or kind uh then she's much less likely to like the guy regardless so, of what yeah, the topic of the content, is maybe i like cheese maybe i want a dessert if you want a second day uh, kind of whatever it's kind of like she's kind of giving away that she's not excited about the guy in, in, in saying those things so that's that's pretty interesting and then uh, the more a woman talks about herself, the more she likes the guy, and the more likely the guy is to like her. Uh, so, like a good successful date tends to have more. More the woman uses I more. Uh, the, the more a woman uses an I, the more likely it's a successful date from both people's perspective. Uh, so, kind of the, conver the conversation shifts towards the woman's life. That's a good a good sign. Mm. I wonder if uh, I wonder if Neil Strauss could rewrite the game or could do like the game two point uh, but just do it off the back of like big data analysis. And I think it's definitely it's definitely promising. Uh, you know, de definitely a lot of these. Uh, you know, I think yeah, I think a lot of a lot of the roles that people have come up with. Uh, you know, so, some of them are probably true. Some of them you find out the data aren't true. Uh, so, it's yeah. in, it's interesting to have some of the sort of I don't know whether you call it like folklore or some of the stuff that people posit about human nature, right? Like you have from Neil Strauss, just a guy that tries to teach someone pick apart history with real world experience, to a doctor who's got a degree in psychiatry, psychology, or philosophy, or you know, human behavior behavioral economics whatever it might be for the most part people are just kind of creating these proxies or this like closest justifiable reason for why they think someone does something and trying to link these two things together and then there's you who's kind of just got this x-ray screen that actually gets to look at precisely what it is without them being worried about signaling to a researcher without them being worried about it coming back to haunt them at work because they said that because they agreed that they voted for some terrible uh, political party uh, with bad views or whatever it might be it must be it, there'll be a lot of um, fields I think that might end up 
becoming ousted or like you know kind of really really upended with some of the things that big data will come up with well it's not just me but yeah i definitely uh, yes, no, I definitely partly you <laughs> This type of research is very powerful tool. Uh, you know, sometimes it just confirms what people, you know, previously thought. Again, that that a woman laughs at a man's joke that 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 means she likes him. I think that's one that we kind of figured out uh, without data analysis, without tape recording. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, everybody, all the, all these dates and uh, follow and, and you know, uh, mining the text. But uh, there definitely are areas where I think you know, our intuition. Uh, and our theories have been wrong because they haven't been based on data. Mm. So what you, you said that you're working on a second book at the moment. What's some of your research been or what have you been interested in recently? Uh, so my second book is on how you can use data to make better life decisions, kind of going off this idea of what you should say on a first date. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly based on part of the, the motivation for my book is that uh, when I read the when, – when I uh, – what, what, you can actually see now you can get kind of data on what people what registers with people as they read your book because on Amazon Kindle you can see the most underlined lines oh the highlight so get, highlight function yeah highlight exactly so one of the things I noticed is that people seem really interested in ways they can improve their own lives <laughs> uh, which kind of fits the everybody lies theme because I think people don't necessarily like to admit that as much people don't particularly intellectuals the type of people would be drawn to my book like to say they don't read for self-help, they read to learn more about the world or to uh, kind of help other people. And I think you definitely do see people want to know what, what can I say in a first date? How can I make more money? Uh, you know, when sh- how, how can, what, what, what business should I start? Uh, so based on that, I'm basically just catering to the masses and writing a book on how okay. you can use data to better life decision. yeah, <laughs> decisions. You, uh, you can use data to work out what you should write in a book to have another New York yeah. Times bestseller. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that, that. Yeah, I guess that's the motivation. But so I'm going through all the different areas of life, and parenting, and dating, and happiness, and wow. Uh, so have you have you elicited any interesting insights into parenting or happiness recently? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of it's researching other people's data, but talking about other people's data that I don't think not enough people know about. But I'm really fascinated by these people who do happiness studies. I don't know if you've heard about this. They ask people, they ping people different times of the day. And they ask them what they're doing and their mood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, I have heard about them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, that's just kind of a really fascinating window into uh, human happiness uh, that I think hasn't been fully, you know, hasn't been fully discussed. So there are all these kind of interesting things. And there are like some kind of interesting counterintuitive things. So, for example, when people are drinking alcohol, they get a big boost in happiness. That's not surprising. Uh, so you get like three or four points on a hundred point scale of happiness if you're drinking mm-hmm. uh, alcohol. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting is that we te- people tend to drink alcohol when they're doing something already fun. So if they're doing if they're socializing with their friends or they're having sex, then they are, tend to drink alcohol. But actually, if you drink alcohol, then it only gives you a tiny boost in happiness or no boost. But if you drink alcohol when you're doing something boring, which people like never do, or or much less less likely to do, then you get a huge boost in happiness. So you actually like uh, get a bigger if you're like cleaning, you know, cleaning up, sweeping or the floor or something, or commuting to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously there are reasons sometimes not to, not to drink during mm-hmm. these opportunities, but uh, it, it's actually more effective for your happiness. I think people use alcohol to try to take a good experience or a great experience and make it epic, which doesn't really work. Uh, instead of kind of uh, kind of. Break, avoiding the doldrums, kind yeah. of. Yeah, it, it's, kind, it's kind of an anesthetic, right? 
Yeah, which is dangerous advice. It's kind of a path towards alcoholism. So I want to be very careful that like a lot of people get addicted to alcohol. I don't want to just you know, just telling people to drink anytime they're bored or unhappy uh, isn't necessary. Is you know you have to use caution, but it is kind of it is it does kind of show. I think one of the things I'm trying to show is ways that we may, we make counterintuitive like the ways that counterintuitive decisions kind of the things that don't feel right can be right. So it doesn't feel right when when you're having fun with friends. Uh, you know, or you're doing something really fun, you really feel like if I ha- start drinking, this is gonna take it, this is gonna take me to the next level. And it tends not to work out that way. Uh, you know, so, so, but, you know, but, but, you know, you, you don't always think, oh, you know, if I have a beer or two now when I'm doing something, you know, just, just doing this really boring thing, then I, you know, that, then it'll be just fine and fun and I'll, I'll be all right. So that's kind uh, of, that's so, really interesting. It's, it's so, so fascinating that it's a small proportion of the enjoyment from typical drinking activities come from the drinking and most of it comes from the activities the yeah, exactly. darts the pool that's the whatever that yes yeah, that's, that's probably one of the reasons we think drinking with friends is so much fun because drinking with friends is so much fun but being sober with friends also is so much fun so uh yeah so we don't kind of distinguish that you know that a lot of it the reason it's so fun is because of the activity and we could just do it without it oh fascinating so, like, yeah like like uh, you get a huge bump in happiness if you drink while you're like getting ready to go out, rather than when you actually go out. Like, cause that's boring. So like, mm-hmm. so maybe it's so like I think people are sober when they're like taking a shower and like getting dressed, and then they go out and they start and they have a few drinks. So maybe it, from a happiness perspective, you should have the few drinks and have a drink in the shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of really enjoy the uh, getting dressed act. You know, the getting dressed activity will be okay now, tolerable or okay. And then you go out, you sober up, but then you're already having fun, so it doesn't really matter. Mm, yeah, it levels out that happiness a little bit more. How about um, parenting? What what cool stuff did you have you found out about parenting? Thing that data tells us on parenting. So one of the big early studies on parenting. This wasn't even necessarily big data, but they found that they kind of studied adopted adopted kids, and they found that overall, the parents you have, the place you grow up, like the household you're in doesn't make a huge effect on your overall life outcome. So the effect's pretty pretty small. So if you get adopted by this family here, that family there, you tend to end up pretty similar. So it's not a huge effect. So it seems like the overall effect of parenting is that huge. But then recently, they found studies mining huge amounts of people who have moved, kids who have moved uh, during their childhood. And they found that the neighborhood you grow up in, if you move to certain neighborhoods, you do way better. So I think if you put together these two findings, the overall effect of your house isn't that big, of the household you grow up in isn't that big, but the neighborhood you live in is pretty big. Mm. It means that the single effect of parenting is where you raise your kids. So that has way bigger effect than basically I argue everything else you do as a parent combined. Uh, basically the particular area you raise your kids. And one of the reasons for this is that role models are really important for kids and the role models aren't just you. So uh, so if you see like uh, girls who grow up in neighborhoods with lots of fem- adult female scientists are much more likely to become scientists themselves. Uh, they kind of see they kind of see role models. African-American boys who grow up around a lot of African-American males who are successful, who stay married, who have jobs are much more likely to do it themselves and it's not necessarily true their own parents so kind of one of the things kids kind of discount advice from their parents frequently or rebel against their parents so your parent you know if you're an african-american boy 
uh, your dad leaves you, you may just be, you may decide I'm going to be the best parent ever because I don't want to be like my asshole dad. Uh, or your dad's a great dad, you're gonna, you kind of rebel the other direction. I can never live up to him. So it's kind of the parent relationship is very complicated, but the neighbor relationship is not so complicated. It's kind of like if you have cool, you're a black boy, and you have cool, good role, African American role models on the street. That's unambiguously good. Uh, so in general, kind of like uh, the, almost the best way to parent is kind of just get a lot of other people to do the job for, for you. To, uh, you know, they're just going to discount anything you say. But if you kind of surround your kids with uh, people who live life the way you want your kids to end up, uh, that uh, will have a big impact. And you can, you, know, you can use this, you can use this finding kind of lots of ways. Kind of, uh, any, I think uh, parents try to lecture their kids too much. Uh, try to le lecture their kids and you know you got to do this you got to do that and I think a better way is take one of your friends who they admire to kind of tell them that uh, where it's more likely to, to kind of they'll want to live up to it uh, kind of utilize the fact that the, I think from the evidence that uh, other people are much more influential on your kid than you are uh, because again you you are your their relationship with you is very complicated mm, yeah it's so funny that you can outsource parenting to the Joneses next door and be yeah. like, right, you take you take our kids, and I'll take yeah, I'll yeah. take your kids, and you be as good as you can, and I'll be as good as I can, and we'll just have like loads of Elon Musk's. And it means you got it means you got to be cautious in who you in the Joneses you choose, the particular Joneses or Johnsons mm. you choose. It's, uh, you can also uh, have bad role models in the area, and you know that uh, that you know they they see a guy who's just like is lazy all day and just drinks all the time and seems to be having a good time. And they're just like, oh, I want to be like, yeah, I want to yeah. be like that. Yeah, it's for not sure. Be. It, it's, it's a cliche, right? It's the cliche of the, the parents that spend several thousand, tens of thousands of pounds, dollars per year sending their kid to some uh, super high-end private school or they get them home tutored and they've had, you know, they've tried to give them all of the opportunities and the, the head start in life or whatever it might be and this kid's in with like a bad crowd and grows up to be you know, some drug dealer or so you know get in trouble all the time always getting kicked out of schools or whatever it might be uh despite the parents best efforts to try and have exactly well, i think the key is that you can't i think you can't i think what what the way i read the evidence is you can't mold your kids too much because they they can rebel you have to do it more subtly basically uh you have to you have, you have to be more subtle and putting them in situations without them realizing it uh where they're you know the kids have to want uh those outcomes, the outcomes that you want for your kids, you can't tell them to want them. They have to want, learn to want them themselves if they're really going to go to it because they can be in the nicest school in the world if their goal in life is just to party and uh, you know have fun and uh, you know not achieve academically or not work hard. Then they'll just do that. You know, no matter what you tell them, no matter what school you send them. But if you can somehow give you know give give them early on uh, some people who they think are really cool who work really hard and and you know, are, are uh, you know, are at, achieve academically, then they'll want that in themselves. They'll ask you to go to the private school. They'll mm -hmm. ask you uh, to, uh, you know, get a tutor, and that's going to be really powerful. You know, the, the best thing you could probably do is trick them so that they're like, "I want a tutor," and you're like, "Well, I don't know if I can afford it." And then you finally, eventually, give in. Make it like they're like, make it they're fighting you to. Uh, yeah, make make it so, like uh, make it so that so that they're kind of like like you're you're holding back what mm -hmm. they really want. They, it was they, actually they, your they, plan all along. Yeah, actually, it was your, yeah, but don't let don't let them realize that. I think that's 
more effective than saying you have a tutor, you got to be there, you got to play the piano, you got to do this. Uh, but but again, yeah, yeah, the plan can work. It's just you got to, you know, you know, like oh, oh, somebody to think really cool. I was tutored as as a kid. Like that's how I got really successful. That's how I got really. Mm. Uh, that's how that's how that's how I eventually like did these things that now you think are really cool. Yeah, I wanted. I've- Okay. Yeah, I've heard. Um, I don't know whether this is true, but I, I remember hearing some stories about where parents would treat vegetables uh, as kind of precious and as a, a reward, kind of like they do with sweets to children, and they'd manage to kind of flip this sacrifice reward matrix on its head, so that kids were like really clamoring. These the, the children were really clamoring to get vegetables because of this basic like I don't have it, I want it. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that that probably, yeah, yeah. I think which is uh, kind of like it's like that's going to be like finding out that Santa Claus isn't real or whatever. Sorry if anyone's kids are watching. I'm supposed to put a warning on before I do stuff like that. If you are listening with your children in the room, I'm so sorry. Um, but it's the same as that, right? Like it's like one day they'll grow up and they'll be like 14 and realize, hang on a second, vegetables weren't a treat all along. Like I've been lied to for the last 14 years of my life by these tyrants that i've got as as parents but uh that's man that's so interesting i wonder if any of the listeners can think back to who their role models were that were outside of their um immediate nuclear family maybe older brother or maybe sorry outside of their parent family like older brother friends neighbors whatever it might be i wonder if anyone can try and work out where some of their passions that they thought were completely self-created actually may have come from. I always wanted to be a football coach. Well, uh, in three three doors down was this professional footballer or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fascinating. yeah I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think in my own experience. I definitely... Uh, Data science, someone with loads of, loads of spreadsheets. Uh, the thing is, I want... I want to be a professional athlete. I think that's just from television, but and that's also just like a lot of com- a lot of people want to be professional athletes. I, I didn't li- live necessarily near any professional athletes, but uh, you know some 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 dreams probably are just pretty uh, pretty standard. But I, I definitely did get an academic drive uh, that probably came less from my parents and more from like yeah I, I I did see some people like had gone to these really good schools and like kind of the respect that I thought they'd gotten. Mm. from having gone to really good schools, uh, which there were a, num- a number of people in my neighborhood who had gone to you know, MIT or Harvard or Stanford, and they did have this respect. And I'm like, oh, I could have that respect if I uh, go to one of these schools. So maybe look, it did, look at it your did CV happen. now. You're just swimming in, swimming in big school diplomas and all different qualifications. Yeah, I, I think that was. I think that was from seeing that. Because my parents didn't go to like uh, fancy schools or anything. Good. Uh, and, and, but, uh, yeah. Good. You I mean, want- it, it's obviously complicated. I mean, parents also can, you know, sometimes be, of course, a role model, and a lot of times kids do just follow in their parents' footsteps. Uh, but I, I do think the parent relationship relationship is complicated, and you know, you you do frequently see kids rebelling against mm. uh, the parent in various ways. Whereas nobody, again, like the you know the the, the friends or neighbors, I think nobody at, at a young age, most most I think most people think their friends and neighbors are pretty cool, or their friends' parents are pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, are in like, oh, I'm going to rebel against what, what that person did or something. So Yeah, for sure. Um, did you do some stuff on the stock market? I was having a, a little bit of a look. Did you look at, at the way that the stock market moves and gaming the stock market? Yeah, I have a little bit. I, I, I didn't have too much success. It's pretty tough. Stock market is pretty, uh, pretty chaotic. And I think uh, you know one of the conclusions I come up with in my book is that 
it's a lot easier to find insights into like racism or child abuse or abortion or uh, these other areas because unfortunately there's not as much talent <laughs> trying to find those insights as the stock market. Yeah. So the stock market you're competing against, you know, astrophysicists and <laughs> everybody's trying to figure out the stock market. And, you know, so it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit more challenge, but, uh, yeah, you can't I trade, think, you can't trade racism on the open market, can you? So yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, you can't get rich, uh, finding a new map of racism in the United States. Uh, you can get rich finding a hidden inefficiency in the stock market. So, uh, I think there's definitely much more talent uh, towards the stock market that it, it can it can be tough with public data mm. as I've historically used uh, finding kind of an insight. Mm. What about you? You mentioned uh, abortions there. There was the the thing about uh, the back alley uh, a sort of abortion yeah. crisis thing. Can you take us through that? Yeah, well, I was just shocked by how frequently people search on Google for do-it-yourself abortions for kind of uh, giving yourself a miscarriage, giving yourself an abortion. Uh, and these searches are almost uh, highly concentrated, almost perfectly. If you look at where these searches are, almost perfectly map a place where it's hard to get an abortion. And they've got they went up a lot in 2011 when it there was kind of a crackdown in the United States against legal abortion. So I think, uh, and also if you actually look at the data, it does seem like there are missing pregnancies in those areas. So uh, births, uh, basically, births have gone down a lot, and abortions haven't kind of. Uh, abortion, abortions kind of also gone down, and you kind of do the math. It seems like probably uh, there there are, are some, there's kind of something happening somewhere. Happening, and I think a lot of that probably is uh, off the books. Abortion. Some of it's not back. I, there are, there are sadly people literally search how to use a coat hanger to give yourself an abortion, uh, but some of it's kind of abortion pills, uh, which now people are getting online. Uh, which it, some people say is actually a good thing. Uh, some abortion rights activists say it's actually a good thing because they're pretty safe, uh, and they're a way for people uh, who don't who are in areas where it's hard to get a legal abortion to kind of still have an abortion without have, have other birth control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a huge disaster necessarily, uh, but got you. So most of what we've spoken about today so far has been to do with Google. Were there any other platforms that you were able to pull data from that you could look at? Yeah, so Pornhub, as I talked about, I analyzed Stormfront. That's kind of a white supremacist site. Uh, also an interesting data set. Uh, that's a, uh, I analyzed Wikipedia, where successful people tend to be born. Uh, where, do they, where are they born? College towns and cities, uh, mostly. So, uh, And yeah, that's that's... Uh, yeah, that, that, that part of that's kind of the genetics. They probably have, you know, if you're a kid of uh, professors, uh, you're more likely to be smart yourself and uh, be more likely to be notable in various ways. But I think some of it is exposure to innovation. Again, expo you know, early exposure. So you see, rock and roll stars are much more likely to grow up in college towns. And I think the part part of the reason for that is because college towns are kind of places of musical innovation. Uh, the rec, the uh, they have, you know, they they historically it's kind of changing but they had these kind of uh, uh, they had record stores that were kind of cutting edge caught people with you know really cool bands would come and play and uh, uh, they had good uh, radio stations so I think part of it the early exposure to innovation got you and what about Facebook we've got um, got anything cool that you've realized on Facebook recently that you've had data from 
one of the things I did is a little politically incorrect, but I looked at, so Facebook, you can measure, uh, for basketball, I looked at how many fans everybody has on Facebook. Uh, so I looked for basketball players, basically how many fans basketball players have. Mm-hmm. And I want to see if how white white basketball players compare to black basketball players. So historically, it's been thought that kind of white players get kind of a boost in fandom and that a lot of teams have thought to, we thought that a lot of teams hired like as their 12th player, their 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 lowest bench player, a white guy just because... The token white re- guy. Yeah, token white guy because people would be more likely to go. So you can actually, you can imagine building an analysis where you, you know basically how good every player is in basketball. You can control for all their stats. So how many points they score, how many rebounds they have, uh, how many assists they have, etc. And they say like, controlling for that, all else equal, how many fans they have on Facebook. And what you see is that African-American players just have way more fans, mostly due to a huge bump up among african American. They basically get a little bump from everybody, so they're a little more popular among white people, a little more popular among Asian people, a little more popular among Hispanic people. And among African-Americans, there's just an enormous uh, gain in fandom uh, for, you know, African-Americans are much more likely to support a black player. Uh, who's equally good as a as a white player? And you got the white player who's number twelve on the bench who hasn't done anything, and he's got like five five likes on his Facebook page. No, 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 no. Yeah, but but the point is that if the black guy hadn't done anything, he'd have ten likes. So the yeah. point point is the same player. Uh, it seems like uh, you know again, contrary to some some uh, historical idea that there's kind of a racism bias against black players in the NBA. There seems to be, if anything, mm-hmm. a big miss. Uh, to black players and building fan base got you so the final question that i wanted to ask is actually one from uh, jordan who's part of the modern wisdom project and he was saying have your insights from big data changed your use of technology at all i think the only thing is i google myself more now that i'm in <laughs> what an answer in newspaper but otherwise i think i don't really think there's made a big change Got you, yeah. Well, it's one of the things certainly that's come up here is it is a, a very um, interesting insight into human nature, into what it is that we do and all the stuff like that. But as you say, this anonymous aggregated data is precisely that. Like, it's happening, but I don't know that it's you as, as it's the guy next door. Yeah. 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 Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, which is interesting. Anyway, man, this has been absolutely awesome. Have we got Seth? Have we got a um, a, a date or a, a, an idea in mind about when the the next book's going to come out? Probably 2021, but uh, I'm not sure exactly when. You got to get through this presidential election, then you're going to have to do all of your yeah, cool. I think, uh, yeah, I'll publish it during the election because everyone's going to be focused on the on the election. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Paul Bloom. Uh, from Yale, and uh, yeah. he was he was saying precisely the same thing. He's doing this new book about um, suffering, about how people really enjoy suffering. He'd managed to find a link between BDSM and meditation, which actually sounds exactly like one of the things that you would you would have come up with out of big data. And um, he he was saying he was like, ah, oh, I think it'll maybe be finished like first draft sort of start of the year and blah 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 and I was like oh cool so we're going to get it next year and he's like no man it's an election this year like, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not releasing anything yeah. so 2021 hopefully we'll get a load of new uh, literacy stuff through so um, where can people find you online Seth they want to follow your stuff where can they go uh, probably just google Seth everybody lies nobody's going to remember my last name so just Seth everybody lies and then they'll find you know my twitter and everything else so. 